Welcome to the Insurance Brokers Podcast with your host, Sarah Myerskoff. This business podcast is for ambitious brokers determined to grow their business. Our guests are highly experienced industry experts and innovators. This is the place to leverage their success, learn how to break through barriers to growth, and discover a community of support and ideas whilst growing your business. On today's episode of the Insurance Brokers Podcast, we're talking to Zoe Flint. Zoe is the Director of Work, Live, Thrive Wellbeing Consultancy, and they deliver cutting-edge, evidence-based and fun wellbeing solutions within the workplace. Their aim is to enable everybody to thrive at work and in life. Founded in 2017, Work, Live, Thrive was established to share the knowledge, tools and techniques Zoe used to recover from a 20-year battle with anxiety and depression. Now a trained coach, hypnotherapist and mindfulness trainer, Zoe also works one-to-one with clients and specialises in trauma and anxiety. Hi Zoe, thank you very much for coming on uh, the Insurance Brokers podcast. I know you're not insurance, but you work with a lot of corporate businesses from quite small up to quite large. Yes, that's right. So anything from around 15 employees to over 100 is kind of my average. Fabulous. And what do you do? Give us the overview of Work, Live, Thrive. Sure. So so it's a wellbeing consultancy. And really what I do is I go in and help companies to transform their workforce, to optimise their workforce. That's a kind of key word at the moment. Optimisation, I love it. Optimisation. So I'm not necessarily talking about kind of extreme levels, diagnosable disorders. I'm more talking about typical anxiety, depression, low self-esteem. And all of those can be present in a workspace and not so much in a personal space? Yes, absolutely. So 15% of people who have mental health issues whilst they're at work are caused by their workplace. Wow. Yeah. That, wow. Yeah, it's massive. And actually, employers don't realise that. So generally speaking, employers will think, you know, this is a really positive thing to do, embrace workplace wellness, mental health, how can we make this really positive? Very few recognise that actually some of the things we're doing, something about our culture, something about the expectations, the work-life balance is making our staff mentally ill. So that's really important, actually, that that people start to recognise that and look at where is it that potentially we are not just putting pressure on our staff, but creating a situation where they are becoming mentally unwell. As human beings, there are certain things we need to feel well. I'm also a therapist as well. And even in that field of work, I always come back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs. I think it just, it makes sense for everything. So if you look at something like safety needs, if, for example, there's a culture whereby when senior management can't manage the staff particularly well, they just keep having redundancies and restructures. Something like that is going to make people feel very unsafe about their job and about their job security and about what's going on, what's happening here. And that sense of unsafety is triggering their fight or flight response. So then they're going to be stuck in a survival mode where essentially their biology is taking over and it's putting them in a place of this is dangerous. And so the long-term impact of that, and I've worked with organisations where, 
you know, every two years they're having a restructure and it's not because they need a restructure. It's because they want to get rid of someone and they don't know how to do it properly. Or they don't know how to work with that person, coach them, to upskill them, to work out what's going wrong. And and this is massive. How do you... Because that's really interesting. Um, I mean, one of the things that I know you know in the insurance market that's quite big is this, the consolidator model. So by default, you are integrating different businesses, different cultures, different Mm -hmm. ways of thinking. Mm -hmm. And just logically speaking, that's got to have an impact. Absolutely. What do you think about that? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. And I mean, if you think our brains have evolved to function optimally 30,000 years ago. So our world has regressed hugely. Our brains still think it's 30,000 years ago. So our brains still think that we're in a little tribe and there's threats from these other tribes and we need to protect ourselves. So if you're bringing together different organisations with different cultures, the way our body's going to respond to that automatically, unless it's managed exceptionally well, and we're talking about communication channels, we're talking about people working really closely together to develop cooperative solutions to things, then what's going to happen is automatically people's bodies are going to go, there's a threat, that's another tribe, that's another tribe, right? We need to protect our own and get very defensive about things. And that's not something that is the fault of individuals. This is the fault of our evolution. But these things can be can be relatively easy to overcome. And it is those very some very simple measures. But again, I know we talked about this before, but it needs to be that kind of top-down thing. So at the top, the senior management team, the board, they really need to understand that if we're going to do this and we're going to do it well and we're going to have really positive outcomes, we really need to invest in thinking about the nature of human beings, and how we can bring people together to get the best out of them, to collaborate most effectively. And some of that is going to be stuff that a lot of people would automatically think, well, where's the value in that? So it might be things like just having fun together. Really simple things that build up relationships. You know, everything in business, as far as I'm concerned, comes back to relationships. And that's what needs the the investment when when you're looking to bring together people with different cultures, different ideas, plus their own individual issues and, and whatever else, and work collaboratively. So some of that stuff, it's about simple things that people from different teams can work together, have a bit of fun, and enjoy. That's and that's a really really simple first kind of step. What happens? In circumstances where there's already a negative mm. relationship, mm. I mean, that can be exacerbated by forcing, for example, mm. a night out, team night out or something yeah, like that, right. particularly if it ends up being around alcohol. Yeah, oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I wouldn't recommend, I wouldn't recommend alcohol nights <laughs> out particularly. So that would need more work. That would need more intensive work. But it could start, and I would recommend an outside facilitator getting involved in something like that. Someone who is neutral. Otherwise, there's always going to be this idea that, oh, well, they were from that organisation. Of course, they're going to support their views or, or mm. whatever else. And I'm, I'm a, a real believer in the importance of honesty and transparency. And I think a lot of companies say that and they have that as their values. We're honest and transparent. And actually, it's <laughs> completely the opposite is true. You know, it's just semantics. But really sitting down and getting out some of this stuff, how people are feeling, what the situation is, 
that's causing the problems. And rather than letting things brew and fester, getting it out on the table. So the important thing when doing things like that is having that shared desired outcome. So presumably everyone that's in that situation wants to go to work somewhere where they feel happy, they feel like they're making a contribution, they enjoy their work, they're contributing to whatever it is that the company does. So you can start with that shared goal or, you know, pull it out of the group that you're working with. What is the outcome? What does everyone want to feel? How does everyone want to you know, wake up and feel when they come to work in the morning. What are the things that are important? So then you're kind of getting everybody on the same page. Then you've got everyone saying, okay, yeah, we're all trying to get to this. And for some of us, it's going to look different. But together, collectively, how can we take the first steps? What are those first steps going to be towards achieving that thing? That's interesting as well, because you said just before, sometimes it's just semantics. Mm. And I I do genuinely believe when those goals are set, semantic or otherwise, there's a desire behind them. It's just how do we make that happen Mm. is the bit that's lost. Yes. Which actually is the same across life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, I think you're right. And I think maybe sometimes people don't understand the depth of it. So when you're saying we value honesty and transparency, there's a conversation around what does that mean? What does that look like? How does that unfold within our organisation? And then being very clear about that. So, for example, when you're going through a restructure or something, you have to be very careful about how much you say and when. And how does that relate to if you're claiming to be honest and transparent? So there is a kind of tightrope that you have to walk. But I would always say that as much as possible, involving the team in decisions And not in a kind of tick box approach, but like, really, what does everybody want to go? Where does everybody want to move? You know, say, for example, okay, we've lost a contract, we're going to have to lose some jobs, right? How can we best and getting the team involved in that? How can we best manage the situation? Which is much easier to do in a smaller company than it is in a larger company. It's much easier in a smaller company. When you're when you get to be a very large company, then it's all the communications issues because say you've got 10,000 people we you know you can't get 10,000 people in one room all contributing to a debate about you know where the organization's going so it's it's the same principles but it's then with different methods so then it's going to be a whole campaign and there might be email surveys that you do you might hold one day events where where people come together and then that might be kind of split up around the country and you're, you're doing different things and that would all need to be managed by a kind of very carefully by a marketing and communications team but yes also so one of the things I do is I train employees in mindfulness and positive psychology they're the two kind of areas that I particularly focus on I am um, in my own recovery from mental health I did a lot of research come from a research background into what is the latest evidence? What is it? Why is it that after 20 years of going to the doctor and taking meds and whatever, I'm still struggling with anxiety and depression? And what I found was that there was this developing field of neuroscience, which is really starting to understand our brain, how it works, what's happening when we're under different stresses, when we feel happy. And so that led me to mindfulness and positive psychology. So positive psychology being you know, normal psychology in inverted commas is what's wrong and how do we fix it? Positive psychology, what's right and how do we make it better? 
So I, I really like that. And it's that real shift in mindset. And what we've learned is through the developments in neuroscience that we can rewire our brains. There's a brilliant book, isn't there, by um, Ruby Wax? Yes. Frazzled, I yes. think it is. Yes. Um, She's can't... done a couple now. But yeah, Frazzled is a great one. It explains it in quite because she does it's before brilliant. and after MRIs, doesn't she? That's after right. doing a is it an eight week mindfulness eight week course. course. Yeah, so an eight week course they've shown changes in the structure of the brain after just an eight week mindfulness course, which is incredible. Presumably, that's with practice in between. Absolutely. Yeah, so the ones that they've done the research on, it's usually a forty five minute daily practice. I think maybe you get the weekends off, but. Um, <laughs> But yeah, it's quite an intensive practice. You really are training your brain to respond to the world in a different way. And it's so incredibly powerful. And the evidence is kind of out of this world for how it impacts, how it changes individuals, how it changes cultures. And, and, and so that's why it worked so well to bring that into an organisation. And how do you bring that in? What, what do you do? Well, there's a number of things, but the best way I find, there's lots of different options that organisations are being offered at the moment. For me, the best way is, is an eight-week course. And what that looks like is an hour and a half session once a week over eight weeks. And the outcomes of that and the change in the individuals, but also the culture of the organisation is just amazing so one company that I was working with last year they've got about 100 staff I did three eight-week mindfulness courses with them so I think about 45 of their staff came and did that now what happens is these people have been working together for years and years and years but when you get a small group in a room and you start talking about some of the important matters in life because invariably as people quiet their minds some of the Shit comes up, can I say that? Yeah, you can say that. (laughs) (laughs) And they start opening up a little bit. And as they start opening up, what they find is that actually, rather than getting rejected or shut down, which is often what we think is going to happen when we're vulnerable with other people, it's completely the opposite that happens. And what happens is the rest of the group will say, oh my God, I'm so glad you said that, right? Because this is what's happened to me, or this is what's happening in my family. So essentially, the barriers come down. People become vulnerable in front of each other. Now, this is the opposite of what we do typically. And we kind of put our barriers up and we try and present this front and we try and make sure that, you know, we're appearing that everything's under control and maybe even we've got the perfect life. Everything's wonderful and we're fabulous at our job. But the reality is we're not robots and life happens. And when people start opening up, And it doesn't have to be like massive, deep things. You know, it's not a therapy group. But even just in little ways, there then becomes a sense of community. And one of the things that we're missing so deeply in our society is a sense of community. There's been a lot of studies recently by What Works Wellbeing, which is the government think tank on all wellbeing related matters. They've done an awful lot on loneliness recently. And it makes us ill. It makes us ill. We're social beings. We are not supposed to be these highly individualised, I can do everything by myself, everything's wonderful, I'm going to keep everything shut in. We are supposed to be living 
in community. I couldn't agree more with that. And there's a book I'm reading at the moment, which is really interesting, but it talks about physical, emotional, mental, psychological, intellectual, I might have made those up, but essentially mm. dependence, independence mm. and interdependence. Oh, that's that's interesting. It's really interesting because dependence is where you start as a kid, Yes, as a baby. I can pick parts of my life where I've almost gone back to that dependent mm. state. I can't make an intellectual decision without checking it with someone yes. first. Yes. The big push, the big you've made life is when you are independent. Mm. And I disagree. Yeah, absolutely. Interdependence is where it's at. And it's based on that community Mm. um, social need. Actually, I don't know if you've ever watched this, but I'd highly recommend it. I don't know how to pronounce his name. It's Tom Shadyak. Right. Something like that. The documentary, it's about an hour long. It's called I Am. Okay. I haven't seen it. I think he's the guy that did Ace Ventura, the director of Ace Ventura, but that Mm. could be totally wrong. But what he essentially does is he goes on um, from a really depressed state following an accident where he has that concussion, but mm. it's like a permanent state of concussion. Mm-hmm. It's a very rare thing. Mm. And he goes on the the pursuit of happiness, for want of a better mm-hmm. word, because in such a low place, he wants to find out what makes people happy. Mm. And there's one study that he does, and I haven't looked into the background of it, but I think that the ideology behind it's amazing. Essentially, across the world, there are loads of random number generators, NASA's. Mm -hmm. Why you'd have them, I have no idea, but I'm sure somebody listening might know, in Mm -hmm. which case, please tell me. (laughs) And what they noticed was 9-11 was a big example. I think the tsunami, the Thai tsunami was another Mm -hmm. one. But when there is global emotional feeling, Mm -hmm. all of those random number generators synced. And they can't explain it. Now... I don't know the science. The, I don't yeah. know any of it. There's a few of those kind of things, but it's more, and it's about being social creatures. And yes. one of the examples he says is, if you're a mechanic and you rip a car apart, you can put it back together and it'll work. Mm. If you're a vet and you chop a dog up, there's just no putting it back together. Mm. What is that essence of life, mm. community, society? It is so fascinating. There's some studies that have looked into singing, which I think are really fascinating that show that when we sing together, like in a choir or, or whatever, the members of the choir's hearts start beating in time. Oh. It's I, just amazing. I suspect that I'd be thrown out quickly before that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that Singing's not my forte, but I love that idea. Yeah. But, but there's there was... a sinking, there's a coming together, there's a getting on board on the same page, and that feeling that you get when that's happening is just, I think it's like a deep sense of belonging. And then we go back to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, that sense of love and belonging. It is fundamental to having mental health, positive mental health. We need that sense of belonging. And this is what happens when you run an eight-week course. That sense of belonging, that sense of shared experience, all comes together. Now, on top of all of that, you've got the mindfulness skills that they're learning about being more present, about not just reacting to situations, about responding from a sense of clarity, from a place of non-judgment about the circumstances. And it's just really powerful to see. And the group that I worked with, the the organisation I was just talking about, they now, so I then trained them as mindful champions. So they now run their own mindfulness sessions at, I think they do one morning, one lunchtime and one evening a week so that the staff can can go in and... and, uh, 
just all de-stressed together essentially what a um, phenomenal idea it's brilliant and then they've they've done retreats together I went in one day and they'd been doing random act of kindness for people all throughout the office I mean it just it was transforms it, it and that's I mean it. that's a a decent sized company 100 mm. staff mm. all around there absolutely absolutely it's so interesting and I, I genuinely believe the world is now shifting mm. I mean the trajectory now yeah. for, for mindfulness but also for understanding and implementing mental health absolutely. in in company cultures family cultures absolutely is growing and, and that goes along with a sense of compassion I think when we can stand in someone else's footsteps to a certain extent even if we've not experienced what they've experienced that's when real change happens I was talking to a, the chair of a board recently and he'd never suffered with mental health issues never could see the point of investing in employee mental health but within the last 18 months he's lost three friends to suicide Jeez. he's probably in his 50s and you know it's the biggest killer of men under 45 is suicide i mean it's just crazy it's a big issue and we need to be talking about it and if you think full-time work mm. monday mm. to friday there are hundreds and thousands millions of people that Monday to Friday, it is, and probably Saturday and Sunday, mm. it's just work. If your culture doesn't support you, I feel like it's really difficult to mm. put blame mm. because actually what we mean is where there is a divergence between individuals or departments mm -hmm. or hierarchical levels, mm -hmm. whether that incongruence is, mm. creates negativity. Mm. And where that negativity is created, people naturally take that on absolutely and make it about me yes and um, when it might not be I know somebody that once told me that he was senior management within insurance brokers and somebody came in an employee came in and said I don't know what your problem with me is but it is making me so unhappy can you just tell me what I've done wrong wow. which actually kudos to the yeah. for, for having the the guts to go and really face that but what was so amazing about it was the senior management had no idea there wow. was nothing negative to this employee at all it was just <laughs> he was living in his own yes. stressed head and yes. maybe barking orders that were yes. then taken personally that kind of negativity which is not meant on anybody's absolutely. part but it breeds doesn't it mm, mm, absolutely and i think within the insurance industry it's such a highly competitive field to be in and within that there's a lot of competition and I mean not just between other other companies but individually you know who's made the most sales you know it's all the target driven stuff and that can actually get extremely stressful because that's not the collaborative model that engenders a sense of belonging it's the opposite. So it's the individualistic I for myself, which is the hallmark of capitalism. But it's about how do we maximise, you know, our profits and what we need to do, but in a way that engenders a sense of teamwork, collaboration. I think it goes one step further than that as well, because sales, real what people you know that the epitome of sales cold calling day mm. in after day even 
as an individual without competition with other members mm. of staff, that is really hard to maintain when you, if you're just not getting that mm. win and you're worried about whether you're you're going to hit your target because you've made 47 calls in the last hour and yep. got rejected from all of them. That level of rejection is yeah. really difficult. And I know in a lot of brokers it's very relationship-based and that's positive, mm. but still rejection in sales is yeah. just part and parcel of it. And, and some people find that really difficult. I think it's difficult for most people. Mm. I think it's really difficult. And because... It's kind of taken as saying something about that individual. Well, you're not a good salesperson then. Because there's always going to be someone around the corner that can convert anything. There's always going to be that kind of star that could sell, what is it they say, snow to the Eskimos. Yeah, or make friends in an empty room. Or, yes. Yeah, exactly. Oops. So, yeah, I mean, that's incredibly stressful as it is. What's going to be happening when you're constantly in that state is your body's going to be releasing all sorts of different hormones and chemicals. So you're going to be flooded with cortisol, adrenaline and all these things, which are very good if you kind of need to fight a lion. (laughs) (laughs) You know, for that daily task. Yeah. But they're not very good if it's constant, constant, constant. And actually that constant exposure to high levels of those sorts of chemicals are eventually going to make you quite unwell. There are links, aren't there? I could have made this up, but between stress and cancer oh yeah yeah absolutely heart disease yes yes absolutely so something like a mindfulness practice can reduce your blood pressure you know it has physical effects what you do with your mind has physical effects when you're stressed that has physical effects on your body so that's why practices such as mindfulness but also relaxation practices whether it be yoga yoga is fantastic And in fact, there was a study a while ago that showed that yoga is the most effective treatment for trauma that we have in the world. Wow. It outperforms drugs, all sorts, you know, any other kind of treatment for trauma because it's it's stored in the body and it's just gently relaxing and releasing that trauma. So, yeah, and, and this whole kind of mind-body medicine, contemplative practices, this is something that we've only just really, in the last, say, 20 years, started to get properly interested in in, in the, the West. Western world. Mm. The East have known it for, you know, 3,000 years or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, we've started to get, and, and we've started to study it, and the reason it's becoming taken more seriously is because of the developments in neuroscience and the way that we can now scan the brains and really understand what's going on and measure changes And so I'm really excited to see where the next 20 years is going to take us because I think it's just going to explode. We're going to have a real much deeper understanding of of the mind-body connection and and how things, you know, can really make us ill or really make us better depending on how we think about them, how we move our bodies, what we put into our bodies, all of this kind of stuff. They say, don't they, magic is just science we don't understand yet. And I love that. Yeah, that's really good. You should have that quote up here. Oh, I'm going to do that. Yeah. I'm going to make a big... Oh, <gasps> we should do vision boards. Oh, we should do vision boards. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> Have you heard of Viktor Frankl? Yes. So his stimulus choice response... Yes, that's right. ...is a mantra we have in our house. So mm-hmm. when the kids are doing whatever they might be doing that's oh, um, wow, kid-related is... They hate me for it, but it's yes. this stimulus choice response. Yes. Let's discuss that. Yeah, and that's I, brilliant. It's such a... You choose how you respond. Mm. and But the thing is, before 
you choose how so this is again this is a lot of mindfulness stuff before you choose you have to recognize what's happening and that tiny space in between the tiny space in between so you can't recognize what's happening if you don't have awareness of the presence if you're stuck in thinking about the past thinking about the future you're not in the present moment you're not here with what's happening right now and it's only when you're here with what's happening right now that you can notice what's happening so, and you can start to see those unconscious habitual mm, drivers that mm, push the triggers mm. It's very interesting watching other people. I bet. (laughs) (laughs) And noticing, you know, when someone gets angry, I think anger is really fascinating, in a situation that wouldn't anger me, for example, and I'm thinking, oh, look, that person's been triggered. I wonder what that trigger was about. There's a really, I mean, it depends how kind of um, hippie you want to go on this. (laughs) Let's go all out Evidence-based hippie. hippie. Evidence-based hippie, best saying ever. (laughs) So um, there's a really nice technique that you can use once you've noticed you've been triggered. Now, when I'm saying triggered, that means that you're having an emotional response, a negative emotional response to something that's just happened. And it could be that your husband's snapped at you about something or, you know, whatever it is, whatever it is. So you notice that you're triggered. So you've got a rush of anger or a rush of sadness or a rush of loneliness, whatever it is, whatever that negative emotion is. And you just close your eyes and you take a few deep breaths and you put a hand on your heart and a hand on your tummy. And you just breathe deeply and you just ask yourself, when was the first time I felt this feeling? Okay. And something will come to mind that when you first felt that anger, that loneliness, that frustration, that sadness, whatever it was. Wow. And when that thing comes to mind, (laughs) it can be quite, you know, cathartic, but there's a process of upset and whatever. Because you'll remember something, and now it might be from 10 years ago, but it might be from your childhood. That was the first time that you felt, or certainly an early time that you felt angry, lonely, scared, whatever it is. And actually, it's that that's replaying because it hasn't been dealt with. Wow. So noticing your triggers and starting to do a practice like that when you're triggered is so useful for your own self-development, self-awareness. And these are really important skills to have in the office, but also in life. And it's very healing. Yeah, it's just fantastic. And it's amazing what comes up. I can imagine. I'm going to give that a go this week. Yes. Every time I have some kind of emotional flooding of yeah, something. Yeah, that's it, absolutely. Because you, you have to get present to be able to do it. That's why you breathe slowly. When you breathe slowly and deeply, it triggers your parasympathetic nervous system, right? So that's the state at which your body is in. And there's a number of different things. Some people call it the relaxation response, opposite to fight or flight response. Some people call it rest and digest because it's when the body is able to go, oh, it's all right, there's no danger, we can digest the food, we can just relax. And some people call it feed and breed, which I quite like. (laughs) (laughs) It's when there's no danger on the savannah, everything's fine, we can eat, we can mate, (laughs) you know, it's okay. So we've gone from hippie to like full-blown animalistic. Yeah, yeah, that's it. Oh, we go all over the place. (laughs) I think it sounds really, really interesting. Um, And that's the state that we have to train our bodies to get into because our society triggers our fight or flight constantly and we don't get out of it because we can't run from an email or fight off the boss. 
right? So we're being constantly triggered, but we're not expanding that energy in the way that it was meant, and it's just cursing through our systems. So one word that's just come to me, which mm. I think is very, very prevalent, particularly maybe in the entrepreneurial space, mm. but also in just normal work, and that's overwhelm. Yes. We are all yes. constantly at some level of overwhelm. Absolutely, absolutely. So this is, um, and I fully buy into that. Oh, yeah. How the importance of, I mean, we're getting to the importance of exercise and eating mm. well, but looking after your mental health as well should be up there with, um, I don't know if it's Richard Branson, but somebody was, it might have been Richard Branson, I don't know who it was, their daily routine is mm. get up, glass of water, 10 minutes mindfulness. Yeah. And just to start the day with yes. that as, as the non-negotiable Yes. Is, um, oh, I'm trying to do it. Little tiny things like that are really important. You were talking about Ruby Wax's book earlier, Frazzled, and I love the way she talks about this. So she says that it's as if we've got too many tabs open on our computer and it's about to crash. There's too much going on in our minds. And she says, this isn't our fault. Our world is too hard, too fast, too big. And her quote is, evolution didn't prepare us for this. Wow. So we have to take steps to combat all of this. And something like a mindfulness practice, and I've talked a little bit about positive psychology, so it's something really simple, like a gratitude practice. And this is shown to be, in some studies, as effective as antidepressants at reducing depression. At the end of the day, every day for a month, you write down three things that you're grateful for for that day. And this can be the worst day in the world. You know, you could have had a horrific day. But... You've got food in the fridge. You haven't got to worry about finding somewhere to sleep tonight. You know, so you can be grateful for the things that you have got that we normally take for granted. Because it's very easy to not see all of that and not see the fact that actually, you know, even if we're really struggling, and I'm talking about we in the West, generally speaking, there's, there's some quote that if you can read and write and you've got a roof over your head and a couple of pence in a jar somewhere, you're in the richest like 5% in the world or something. Now I could have got that wrong. But we forget that we are exceptionally privileged to be in the position we are, even if it's shit. Yeah. Because we're not in war. We're not in famine. You know, we're not experiencing terrors that a huge proportion of the world experience. And actually just coming back to that is really quite grounding. Yeah. Really grounding. I think you have to be a certain level of maybe self-understanding to be able to genuinely think that way. Mm. You know, to genuinely really be grateful mm. for the things you take for granted yes. is quite a difficult concept. Very difficult. Yeah. I've been very grateful for the internet, having just recently moved house. <laughs> <laughs> into a new build where they didn't put some telephone wires in or something. So I've been six weeks with no internet. Wow. Running my own business from home. It's been interesting. But I cannot tell you how grateful I felt when they turned on the internet. <laughs> it I was can amazing. Imagine. But what's happened with that practice for me, because everything I teach is stuff that not only I've researched, but I've used to recover from 20 years of mental illness. That practice for me was so fundamental and I did it for a number of years every day to the point where now I don't have to do it at all because 
I can see that my brain has rewired itself from a glass half empty to a glass half full. So even when things are really dreadful, I can still look at, yeah, but look what we've got. And also the other thing that's happened, which I love, is that I notice really tiny things that make me really happy all day long. Wow. So even just something like, you know, the heated car seats. I love having a warm bum. (laughs) 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 It makes me very happy. And also I love listening to Women's Hour on Radio 4. And because of the work I do, very often I can get I can go home after I've dropped the kids at school and I can put women's hour on whilst I do some of my admin. And it's those tiny things. The sun coming through the window and making a rainbow on you know, a little rainbow on the wall or something. And I notice them and I save so savoring is another element of positive psychology. So really sitting with it, really experiencing those feelings, really savouring it and then coming back to it later in the day and remembering how nice that was. And it really changes. It feels almost like, it's almost like a completely different world. Whereas I used to go around and only see the horror in the world and the grey and the cracks. Now I go around and I see this joy. And it just transforms how you relate to other people, which then transforms the relationships that you have. It transforms your experiences because you can kind of find these nuggets, these little nuggets, even in horrible situations. Mm. So if anyone wants to go away today and, and do something to rewire their brain, that's one of the top tips, is the gratitude practice. Okay. I think it's amazing. And I think actually being able to bring your experience, your research, your expertise, your knowledge to, to help corporations, just the semantics around corporations sounds... Yeah, yeah, yeah intense but just to be able to bring that and actually from a from a corporate point of view presumably there's all kind of stats then I mean there must be around a healthier culture increasing the bottom line oh absolutely and you know that it has all sorts of impacts including you know reductions in turnover which we obviously know is very expensive people are staff turnover yeah staff turnover because people are much more committed to that organisation if they feel well and they feel looked after and they feel invested in and valued and seen. Creativity is massively increased, which is so important in today's, you know, so fast-changing, fast-moving world. It's really important that we come up with creative solutions and we have that space to think a bit differently. I think it's Google, isn't it, that do um, they have an innovation pot where every employee gets, I don't know, half a day, a day, whatever, a week to go in to the innovation sector and and, and put in ideas. And then they get a stake in that idea if it goes off. And I think uh, Gmail was was an innovation idea from an employee. That creativity, but then on the flip side, Google have created offices where you don't want to leave because they have slides and food bars and beds. I mean, that's... But that probably is an example of creating a culture that works for people that want to work 24-7? Yeah, I would never advocate that. I love the fact that they've got slides. I mean, who wouldn't rather go down a slide than a lift? I know. I just think it's amazing. They've got swings. Some of their board, like, meeting rooms are just swings. So you swing into the middle. (laughs) When you've got something to say. Yeah. You've got three seconds to give your elevator pitch while you're at the top. (laughs) But... I think there's an element there where it's gone where it's gone too far. I'm not an expert on kind of Google culture. But uh, 
I know they were doing things like um, they would have bands there of an evening and stuff and people would be sleeping over. Yeah, that's that's not healthy. That's not healthy at all. No, no, perhaps Work not. Work isn't everything. To some it's, people it is. Well, you think of Elon Musk in his prior to PayPal. Mm-hmm. I think he said somewhere that he's was at his happiest when he was sleeping on a beanbag in the office, working 24-7, because that's... Uh, but then, so the therapist in me would say, well, that's because it's become an addiction then. So that's because he's escaping what it feels like just to be him. Wow, now we're going really deep. <laughs> I like it. And it's the same with any addiction, you know. Why do people drink or take drugs or exercise crazily or, you know, shop ridiculously because they don't want to feel their feelings? Wow. So, yeah. So I would say, yeah, he may well have been happy. People, while they're high on heroin, yeah, that's where they want to be. But they want to be there. That doesn't mean it's healthy. They're doing it because they want to escape how they feel. Yeah. Wow. And I suppose, actually, if we relate that back to the workplace, absenteeism mm. is is mm. an escapee mechanism. Can yeah. be, for yeah. you know, and not through pulling a sickie, but a genuine physio- physiological reaction to not wanting to be in the office yeah. space causes illness. And it's that same mentality, isn't it? Yeah, the absolutely. Avoidance of... Yes. Something that's negative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think we have gone round the houses in this, but I've really, really enjoyed yeah, it. Yeah, me too. It's been really, really lovely to chat to you. Yeah, and I actually would uh, very much like to do some collaborative Yay. work. Yay! Let's yes. do something. Well, thank you very much, Zoe. Um, if anybody's got any questions for Zoe, please leave them in the comments. I'll put the links to Work Live Thrive in the comments. And um, have a nice day. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you have enjoyed what you have heard, have any questions or feedback, please leave us a review and we will be sure to get back to you. If you would like further information on how Boston Tullus Group can support your business, or if you would like to join us on an episode, please do not hesitate to contact us.